The best place to play fantasy football this summer is Underdog Fantasy. Their best ball mania tournament has $10 million in total prize money. And the best part is you just draft your fantasy football team and that's it. There's no waivers, no trades, no in-season management. Underdog gives you your best score each week of the season and the highest scores at the end of the year win. The champion of Best Ball Mania last year drafted in June, so there's no time like the present to join Underdog and take your shot at a million-dollar draft. Plus, Underdog is going to double your first deposit up to $100 when you sign up with promo code PFF. Also, if you, pay, if you play 10 of those dollars using promo code PFF, you get a free PFF subscription. So what are you waiting for? Head to underdogfantasy.com or the App Store, play $10 with code PFF, and draft your Best Ball Mania team today. back on a Monday we have some news here and I will talk extensively about the Kyler Murray contract extension not just focusing on the extension itself but also looking in detail at the performance that Murray's had so far I think there are some underlying things there with the performance some things to be encouraged about that don't necessarily show up in the headline numbers some things to be discouraged about try to figure out what's signal, what's noise here for Murray, and whether or not he's going to pay off at this now record amount. I'll put the record in quotes here because he did come in with the highest average per year value that we've seen in the contract position, topping Deshaun Watson's most recent contract by a healthy $100,000 total over the entire length of the deal. But just to get an idea of whether or not that's going to be a profitable contract for the team and how good it is for Murray himself. In the second half of the episode, I'm going to break down a few different pieces of research that PFF has put out this offseason, taking behind the curtain a bit on what the nerds here at PFF are doing. I am specifically looking at offensive line play and the benefit of getting elite play versus good play in the offensive line. We have some great new research that came out on that, which backs up some of the feelings about whether you want to look at a weak link versus strong link system, thinking about the offensive line, the amount you're paying. It's obviously very important for free agency to think about those, those sorts of things. So that'll be, that'll be one piece I'm going to talk about. Another one is a better job of quantifying contracts. There's some great new research that came out. Um, Again, I'll go through there. I'll go through an example of Devontae Adams' contract where it gives you a better idea of saying, yeah, we know that this is a five-year contract worth $28 million a year in the headline, but how likely it is that we see the end of this contract, how likely it is for each individual year that that ends up being the year that the contract is either over or the player is released, and getting from that more of an adjusted probability-based contract value not only in the dollar amounts that they'll earn, not only in the years that they'll earn, but then we can get a better figure in annual per year, the amount these contracts are worth by looking at all those different factors rather than the funny money sort of stuff that ends up getting out there into the atmosphere based upon numbers that come through mostly from agents and NFL insiders and others. So that'll be part of the second half. Let's let's get straight into Murray here because this is the news of the week. Let me go ahead and bring up his contract details when we're discussing here. So uh, first off, I will just give props to my boy, Jason Fitzgerald, who runs over the cap, this website. He also has a podcast, the over the cap podcast. I listened to his digestion and analysis of this Murray contract this morning. I suggest you do too. High level, he wasn't as positive on this for Murray as maybe I would be for him. But let's let's go through the details and, and maybe we can figure out why uh, our analyses don't exactly line up. But I think we're basically in the same place here. So here's the details that we have on Jason's site here uh, over the cap. If you're going to go and look at, look at it again, I say go ahead and do that. Again, 46.1 million APY on an extension that ends up being a five-year extension. I think that's an important number straight off the bat, because if we're talking about other quarterbacks who have had 
extensions after their third season. So after the third season is the first earliest possible time for a drafted player. You can do it earlier for an undrafted player, but for a drafted player, the earliest time that you can extend the contract. So Murray is getting this extension as early as he possibly could. I know we had all of this hubbub over the offseason, the letter that came out, the way too long letter that came out from his agent, and then the back and forth, a little bit of sniping about leadership and other things. Luckily, I'll give myself some credit here, some props to me in, in the gratuitous self-congratulation portion of the podcast where I'll say, I didn't really get into a lot of that back and forth other than to say I thought he was eventually going to get signed, and he actually has. So I know we need a lot to talk about in the offseason, but uh, this was something that was pretty unlikely that they weren't going to be able to come together on this. So that's that's the main detail on this is the is the main overall number. Let's break down the particulars here. Let's let's dig into a lot of it here. So we have as part of the deal, you have some roster bonuses. You got some big roster bonuses of about 52 million over the course of the contract. You have a prorated bonus when we talk about uh, the signing bonus and other sorts of guaranteed bonuses are going to come in of about 70 million over the course of the contract, which you can amortize that over the course of of most of the contract, but not the entire thing. There's some weird stuff in here. There's per game roster bonuses of 4.2 million. And you don't necessarily expect to see that for a quarterback contract. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Maybe there's some concern about his ability to stay on the field. I mean, it's not a big amount in the grand scheme of things when we're talking about a $230 million addition to, to the contract, which is going to come out to 270 in total when you add on those last couple of years. But it's something there. Workout bonuses is another kind of interesting thing here that there's 9.3 million in workout bonuses. He hasn't had any problems as far as showing up to the offseason workouts to this point. Maybe there's some leadership questions and other things people would bring into that. But again, I, I would ignore and, and fade the noise on most of that. But it is interesting, at least, that in total there is 13, 14 million dollars in bonuses for per game and for workout bonuses, which you don't necessarily see that high of an amount for a franchise quarterback contract now the particulars again five years versus Allen which signed who signed a six-year deal Mahomes again signed a 10-year extension on here I think some of the numbers are probably a little bit deceiving because we have a rolling guaranteed structure here so I know everyone was thinking that maybe the Deshaun Watson contract would change the face of NFL contracts with a fully guaranteed deal and we would see that going forward for a lot of different guys and I mean, it just doesn't end up being the case. If you think about Murray's numbers, the, the guarantees are much lower, especially the guarantees right out of the box. But he does have a rolling guarantee structure, which I think is going to be pretty interesting and needs to be understood in order to figure out when exactly, if at all, uh, guys can get out of this contract. Meaning either side here, whether there could be movement or even the Cardinals getting out of this contract. Uh, if you're going to get that fully guaranteed, the Watson deal, you can throw it out. The Cousins deal, you can kind of throw that out too. Both of them are basically reaching free agency. Watson was able to do a bidding process with multiple teams, which is like free agency. Kirk Cousins did make free agency. Those are different than when we're talking about negotiating underneath the specter of multiple years left on your contract and the franchise tag here. So, as far as when this con what the guarantees actually look like on this contract, not a whole lot in in guarantees. We're talking about the 38 million that's guaranteed in the total salary here, but you have the rolling guarantee structure. So if you look at the headline numbers here as of today, you could look at 2025 and say there's dead money of 33 million on it. So if Murray only plays out three years on this contract, the Cardinals could conceivably cut him in the 2025 offseason and only take a $33 million cap it. Now, I say only, that's a big amount, but we've seen similar-ish amounts when we talked about what happened with Carson Wentz and the Eagles contract. The issue is that there are rolling guarantees. And if you look at 2024, so at the beginning of the league year in 2024, the 2025 salary and roster bonus, so the combination of those two, we're talking about another 30-ish sort of million they be, the 2025 numbers become guaranteed. So in reality, when you get to the 2025 offseason, the amount, the cap it that you would take is more like 60 million because there are additional guarantees that would have kicked in here. Again, these are what teams structure these deals rather than having to fully guarantee them. They structure in these rolling 
guaranteed structures in order to make sure that they don't have to put all of the cash into escrow at the beginning of the deal and only have to do it a year in advance. But de facto, this is a guarantee for the 2025 season. Again, we see that at the beginning of the 2025 offseason, the 2026 uh, guarantee kicks in. Uh, 36.8 million of additional guarantees are put onto the 2026 contract. So again, the the headline number you might see right now is, oh, you could get out of this deal in the 2026 offseason for 20 million. No, again, it's more like 60 million. And then in 2026, the base salary for, for 2027 becomes guaranteed. So rather than the headline number here of 7.2 million being able to get out in 2027, it's really more like approaching 30 million in the high 20 something million. So I guess that's conceivable. So it's conceivable if everything goes to hell between the parties involved here, between Murray and the Cardinals, that this could end up being a contract where Murray plays for them through the 2026 season. The Cardinals either take a $7.2 million cap hit and trade him, or if they have to cut him outright, they would take almost a $30 million cap hit there. And they could move on at that point. I think that's probably unlikely. Uh, either way, Murray has pretty good guarantees on this. And then, of course, it rolls forward and there's a $34 million salary in the final year with another $9.7 million bonus and some other things that bring it out to about $46 million cap number, which really isn't that bad if you think about it. Deshaun Watson is going to be playing on a $53 million cap number, not this season, but for every remaining season of his deal. So even in 2028, it doesn't look that bad for the Cardinals. So I think it was a good deal for both parties as far as being able to come at a agreement in the middle, uh, be able to hit that number for the highest contract in history and also not go too much further than that because of the question marks for how Murray has played so far in his career versus what we're going to expect going forward. Uh, some more details here that I want to go through is more analysis from Jason Fitzgerald, our friend over at overthecap.com. Check him out here. He has a good article on this where it looks at a cash breakdown. So I do think it's interesting. In particular, I want to focus on the cash breakdown between Murray and between Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen, because they are the equivalent situation. They're the guys who were re-signed on these deals after their third season. Now I mentioned how there's a lot longer deals for Mahomes in particular with the 10 year extension, but then also an extra year for Allen there. I think Allen and Mahomes probably were a little bit too easy on their teams. There seems to be a lot of goodwill there. The teams are moving in the right direction. All that sort of stuff was happening. Mahomes in particular with that long, long deal, you know, I, I don't know if he did the best job, he or his agent, as far as maximizing his amount of money that he was going to earn on that. But if he wants to do that, if he wants to stay with the Chiefs, there's a lot of goodwill there for everyone involved. And that's what ended up happening. Because if you look at Murray here, now I know his deal is a year after Allen's, two years after Mahomes, but still, uh, not only is the average per year higher, but his cash flow was a little bit less than Josh Allen right out the box. But then immediately it's higher than Allen's after year one, uh, again, after year two, year three, year four, and year five. So he's done 230 million at the end of year five, could potentially hit free agency the next year. And at that point, he'll have about 15 million more than what Allen has earned to that point. He'll have about 33 million more for Murray than what Patrick Mahomes has earned to that point. So way over Patrick Mahomes. Now I know Mahomes is going to have years where the that amount's going to kick up really huge. It's a 60 million dollar cash infusion in year six for Mahomes, but that's probably going to end to some sort of restructure at that point and continue forward. Whereas Murray is in the clear at that point. So I think Murray did a good job keeping the, the number down on the number of years and really also got a contract. That's not going to require a restructuring. If things go right for the Cardinals, another way to look at it as a guarantee, as I mentioned before, you know, you're not getting the Deshaun Watson hundred percent guarantee that we saw. This was not going to change the market. That was all a bunch of hype. Uh, and if you look at where the guarantee structure came in for Murray, it's kind of in the middle here. I mean, 60% of it is injury guaranteed. 40% of it is fully guaranteed at the beginning. But like I mentioned before, because of the rolling structure of it, the rolling guarantees of it, in reality, it's you know 
fully guaranteed when you think about all the different money that's going to come through there. 70, 80% is a real full guarantee with all of the different rolling structures in there. Nothing changed with this deal. This is not pushing the market forward much at all. But Murray, as a more questionable player, I would say, than Allen and Mahomes were coming off of their third seasons, did well to get what he got here. Um, and again, we, we saw this for the cap hit for Murray. It never gets above the $51 million, which that, that's a big number. Don't get me wrong. That's a big number. But it's a, actually, sorry, there's a $55 million in here, which are big numbers. But by the time we see the revenues come around in 2026, we're already hearing new deals for the Sunday ticket potentially being negotiated at YouTube or at Google or other places. There's going to be a lot of money to go around and it shouldn't be cost prohibitive here. If they really want to restructure and go for a all in couple of years at that point in time, depending upon how the roster looks, that could happen. But generally this is a contract. I think they're going to be able to get in and out of without having to restructure it based upon making the cap hits, incredibly small these first two years. I mean, they are small, 12 and 16 million, but they didn't try to make them incredibly small these first two years. Okay, so let's talk about Murray the player. I think this is the important part that's in the background of all of these discussions. And a lot of the thought when it comes to contracts is, well, if you're worth a second contract, then you get paid incrementally more than whatever the existing market is. And while that may be how it's worked in the past, I think we have to think about who the player is as far as whether they are worth it or not. So for my numbers, looking at his grade ranking in the NFL amongst quarterbacks who have at least 300 plays during that year. So that includes dropbacks and designed runs for those quarterbacks. Looking at his PFF grade by year, looking at his expected points added per play, his efficiency in that metric by year. Murray in 2019, in his rookie season, he was about 25th in grading, 21st in expected points added. Not great, but not good surroundings. And coming off of Josh Allen perhaps being the worst quarterback season ever (laughs) for a rookie. I mean, it it was up there. Um, That actually ended up improving the team prospect at least a little bit more here. In 2020, Murray improved across the board, getting up to 12th in his grading, 15th in his in his uh, expected points added. And then 2021, improving again slightly in his rankings. But as we see, the numbers didn't necessarily improve, but quarterback play was worse generally in 2021 than in 2020. He moved in, got into the top 10 in his grading, but still 13th in his ranking for his efficiency, what he was actually doing on the field and expected points added. So that's really measuring the points that are being added on the plays that he's involved, he's involved in. Still about 13th, about 13th on the season. Uh, If we go and we look at all of these younger quarterbacks, so I'm going to throw Lamar Jackson in there, even though he did not get re-signed, but look at all the different guys who got re-signed after their third season or Jackson looking to get re-signed after his fourth season here. How do they perform over the first three years of their career? So for Murray in particular, if you look at where he was first year, again, I mentioned below average. The second and third year, it's almost exactly the same performance if you look at his second and third seasons his grading and his expected points added per play those two metrics my favorite quarterback metrics for grading what actually happened and the process of of what happened by our grading by figuring that out he was almost in the same exact spot where his grading was pretty good but his Efficiency was only a little bit better than what you would expect on average. And what we don't see, what we did not see from Murray in these first three seasons so far, we did not see really, really high-end play. We saw a jump from his rookie season to his second and third seasons, but we didn't see the really, really high-end play. Where we, Whereas we did see that high-end play from Mahomes, who had top three-ish sort of seasons in his efficiency and his grading in both his second and third seasons. He doesn't have a first season. He doesn't have a rookie season to look at. Um, Lamar Jackson had the high-end play in his second season, though he did step back down to similar play to what we saw for Murray in his third season is what, by the numbers, Jackson did in his third season. And then Josh Allen, he had two poor seasons relative by the numbers his first two seasons, but then had a massive jump to also get into that top five-ish sort of range for grading and efficiency in his third season. So we don't have the high-end play for Murray that we had for Mahomes and Allen, and he's getting a contract, which not signed in the same offseason, but signed afterwards, is getting him a bit more money. 
I think even when you look at Deshaun Watson, his first three seasons, he didn't have the greatest grading, but his efficiency every single one of those seasons was better than Murray. So I think there probably was more optimism about Watson there. And then in his fourth season, the team did not do well. They went four and 12, the Texans, but Watson himself broke out having top five grading and top five efficiency in the fourth season. So what is the likelihood we can get one of these top five-ish sort of numbers out of Murray, who, if you look how he played in the first half of 2020, first half of 2021, there was MVP buzz about him both seasons because he was playing at that sort of level. So let's look at some of the internals of how Murray played last year to get an idea of how he's going to play going forward. So I'm a window into my process here for looking at these different quarterbacks is I'm going to look at expected points added a lot. Again, this is looking on a play-by-play basis, how much, how many more points you can expect the team to score based upon the change in game state. Uh, it's not just going to look at yards, all yards as being equal, you know, losing five yards on second and one is a lot more of a problem than losing five yards on third and 15, right? So this is going to account for those sorts of losses in situational play here. So if you look at his different seasons from 2021, uh, 2020, and 2019, I think the important part when you look at how he's played, and if you break expected points added into the different components that go into the overall play for quarterbacks, those components are passing, interceptions. So passing without interceptions, how many interceptions you're giving up there, points you're losing there. Uh, Sacks. A big negative there for sacks for a lot of players, not necessarily for Murray, but for a lot of players. And then scrambling and rushing. So those two things come together in the rushing component. The big thing I think is masking his improvement in passing performance, where he did improve his passing performance in 2021. The big thing that's masking that when we talk about results and we talk about expected points added per play is the fact that he has had a ton less value added rushing in 2021 versus what he did in 2020. Now it's a bit more than what we saw in 2019 where he wasn't running enough, but Murray really was a running sensation, especially the first half of his 2020 season. If you take the total expected points added that Murray had via scrambling and designed runs in 2020, we're talking about roughly 32, 33 expected points added. So that's like a win added almost based upon those metrics just alone. Last season, he actually had negative expected points added rushing the ball and on designed runs. And then he had about 18 expected points added scrambling. So maybe 10. So we're talking about one season, he had a combination together where it was like 50 something expected points added between scrambling and rushing last season. So again, almost two wins added when we add in the the rushing in there. So he had almost 50 something last season, this season about 10. So that's a major, major downgrade in his rushing. Is he any less capable of a runner now than he was in 2020? I don't think so. There were a lot of unsustainable plays that he made in 2020 via the ground game that just wasn't going to happen going forward. And we saw it a little bit this season, but he can boost up that number. So I think while his efficiency overall was about equal between 2021 and 2020, he took a step forward passing the ball. I think that's the most important thing for projecting him going forward. If you look at other aspects of his game, I mean, there isn't a huge thing to look at when you look at clean versus pressure expected points added. But I think what's interesting is he actually had better efficiency from a clean pocket in 2021 versus 2020. And he had better efficiency under pressure, but his total efficiency didn't change. So why is that? Well, the mix of pressured versus unpressured clean pocket passes really changed a lot for him. He was under pressure 32% of the time last season versus only 27% in 2020. And while his sack rate did go up a little bit because of that, didn't go up that much. So he did a good job handling that pressure. And so why did his pressure rate go up? Was it him, you know, not playing as well, taking too many pressures for Kyler Murray? Uh, No, I don't think so. Because when you look at his offensive line, they were the fifth ranked team in pass blocking in 2020 when his pressure rate was lower. And then when his pressure rate jumped up into 2021, they fell down to 18th. That number will hopefully settle somewhere between there for Murray. So I think that's going to give him a little bit of a boost in his production in 2022. Okay, the last thing that I'll talk about here is for, for his numbers 
is looking at early down versus late down. What's interesting for Murray here is he wasn't as good on early downs, but he was better on late downs. Sometimes that can be seen as being a forecast for play potentially going down. Um, but I like to see guys who can make plays on third down. It's not the stickiest thing, but if you look at the best quarterbacks in the league, it was a little bit distressing that in 2020, Murray was not making those plays on the late downs, whereas he was in his rookie season, he was in his last season. So I think it's a good return to form for him because guys like Josh Allen, guys like Patrick Mahomes, they consistently make plays on third and fourth down when it matters. That's when you really need the quarterback to make a difference there. You're less likely to get schemes that open things up. You're more likely to really just need a quarterback to make a play. And Murray did do that last season, which also hints into the fact that if you look at his big time throw rate was up, he was actually in the 97th percentile for big time throw rate last year at 7.8%. And his turnover worthy play rate did not change. So again, there are lots of internals when you dig into the numbers for Murray that shows a more successful season in 2021 versus 2020. I know they flamed out at the end. I know they had a disappointing playoff run, but lots of internals looking at him as being a a better quarterback in what's going to be sustainable, the passing success in 2021. Uh, One more thing you can look at here is if you want to look at what was driving that passing performance for Murray, it was really throwing down the field. He is a 90th percentile guy in how much, how many expected points added he drove going down the field. Uh, and he was throwing down the field more often, making bigger plays, splash plays. Those are the type of throws that you want to see from him as a quarterback. And again, the player that was causing this, which I thought a biggest change in year over year, was actually Christian Kirk. Kirk had negative expected points added when he was targeted more than 15 yards down the field in 2020. And he had about 34 expected points added in 2021 when he's targeted down the field. So Kirk is gone, but that Marquise Brown trade, which some people thought it was kind of ridiculous to give up a first round pick, but remember they got a second round pick back as part of the deal also gave up a third, but I think that's really going to be key to replacing that down the field efficiency that we saw from Christian Kirk Because I'm not going to say it was Kirk doing it. I think it was Murray becoming a lot better passer there because Kirk wasn't doing it in 2020. But having that option of Brown down the field, who, of course, he played with in Oklahoma, having that continued success with passes that are 15 or more yards down the field, I think is going to be hugely important for Kyler Murray's success throwing the ball and sustaining that going forward. Okay. Another thing we can look at for Murray is to try to get an idea of where he's throwing the ball. The, the, the knock on Murray is that he doesn't throw it over the middle of the field very well. And if you look at his targets above expectation, some numbers that Timo Riske, who's a analyst here in our R&D department, puts together, it's definitely very blue when you look at these different graphs here, which shows under expectation for the middle of the field. It did change a little bit season over season, though, from 2020 to 2021. In 2020, on the left-hand side, there's just this huge red area, which was basically DeAndre Hopkins getting peppered with targets. Now, Hopkins missed time. He's going to miss time at the beginning of this season with suspension. I think, in a way, all those targets getting peppered to Hopkins in that really five-yard range, but also going up to 10 and 15 yards, may not have been the most efficient use of Murray's talents throwing the ball down the field and also just became a little too predictable and low ceiling on the efficiency. And then in 2021, he has a little bit more of light red or over-expectation target amounts down the field, across the field, everywhere. And again, that's something you're going to want to see continue. That's something which will be enhanced by Marquise Brown being there. And maybe if they can figure out how to get Rondale more more than about a one-yard average depth of target, and I'm not joking, he had about a one-yard average depth of target in 2021, maybe if they can get him down the field a bit more too as a guy who runs a 4-3, that could be an interesting place to open things up for the Cardinals offense. And it might be a little bit of, addition by subtraction, Ewing theory type of thing here with DeAndre Hopkins, where not having that security blanket for those passes could open things up for the offense a bit more in this season, at least while he's out on suspension and then carrying over after he comes back. 
So how good is Murray? Where would we rank Murray and all the different quarterbacks? Well, when I did my off-season quarterback rankings, which is based upon the end of season for 2021 rankings, I ranked all the different quarterbacks, how well they played in 2021. And I also looked at their career number. And it's it's basically looking at their grading on a play-by-play basis, their expected points added on a play-by-play basis, how many plays have they had in their career, The longer they've been playing, the more confident we are in their performance and we can project them going forward. So if you look at Murray last year and an overall number for him at about seventh, he's about the seventh best quarterback last year based upon pretty high amounts that he he had as far as number of plays, not as high as the year before. And then the numbers that that he had there while trailing off to the end of the season, I think he really fell in people's minds at that point, unfairly a little bit in people's minds. His career ranking comes out at ninth. So if we're looking at what we should expect for him going forward in his quarterback play, ninth is where I have my numbers going forward with Patrick Mahomes being first, Rodgers and Brady being second and third, Herbert and Burrow being fourth and fifth, Josh Allen sixth. Josh Allen is probably a little underrated there because those first two poor seasons of play are holding him down. So if you wanted to have him above Herbert and Burrow, I think that's fine. Stafford is definitely too low here at 16th because a lot of it is feeding in all of those different years that he had with the Lions. So perhaps he's higher than Murray. So that would move Murray down to 10th. And then Dak Prescott is 11th here. I think Murray, I'd actually rather, I'm actually a little more confident in Murray's performance going forward than Prescott. But as we've seen in a lot of quarterback rankings, that hasn't been the case. So Murray is somewhere in the, and then Deshaun Watson, who's not part of this, Deshaun Watson would be higher than Murray at nine. So Murray's somewhere in this maybe 10 to 13 ish sort of range for what you'd expect from going forward. Is that worth the best contract in NFL history, a contract that, again, is going to pay more than what we saw for Mahomes and Allen. I mean, probably not, but I do think that he still has a decent amount of upside with his play. And that's what we're going to have to figure out going forward, how much of that passing consistency will play forward there. If he can keep up that passing consistency, I think he can get into maybe not the top five quarterbacks in the league, but he can get close to guys like Burrow and Herbert for how he's going to play going forward. And that will make him worth this deal, a deal that I think all parties should be satisfied with and a deal that'll make him look pretty good going forward. All right, before we get to research, and I'm also going to get to a, you know, best worst tweet of of the week here. Let's let's pay some bills here with Manscaped. Gentlemen, all men strive for gold in their life, right? Gold medals, gold watches, gold everything. However, there's a certain type of man who goes the extra mile. He walks with the confidence of an eagle and giggles in the face of danger. He's a big hairless winning machine, and when he unzips his pants, he sees platinum. That's right. Manscaped would like to introduce you to their best and biggest ultimate hygiene bundle yet, the Platinum Package 4.0. Manscaped is the leader in below-the-waist grooming. Now trust them with the whole shebang. Join 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by going to manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping with code PFF. Manscaped's brand-new Platinum Package 4.0 is the biggest bundle they've ever offered, giving you bulk discount on Manscaped's top products. Get 20% off and free shipping with code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com and use code PFF. It's time you enjoy the finer things in life and get yourself a Platinum Package for your Platinum package okay now we're going to talk let's go into best uh worst or worst best tweet of the week here and they're really for me at least the one that i got the most comedic value off of and (laughs) i think would be the most fun to discuss here is something from uh my man adam schefter uh, Adams had some bad, bad tweets this offseason, but in this one, I'm putting it more in the category of a, a good, bad tweet. So for those who, who didn't see it, um, we have here Schefter, you know, it, it's 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 hard. It's a hard life for him during the offseason when nothing much is going on. I mean, he put out a story a last week also about Jimmy Garoppolo having permission, his agent having permission to seek a trade it's like yeah he's had 49ers would have been perfectly happy to trade him at any point this offseason nothing has changed so poor poor Schefter does have to you know put some stuff out there just to just to give some some grist just to give some chum for the 
get ups of the world and others to have something to talk about during the off season. But this one here, you know, feed, looking into the Instagram feed, first he had a picture of Matthew Stafford and his rings that they got at a uh, at a Super Bowl ring party that they had for the Rams. And Stafford's wife, Kelly, you know, God bless her, you know, uh, battle uh, cancer survivor. Uh, uh, Watching well, was cancer was just a tumor, but anyway, she had. I know she. I know she had a brain tumor removed a couple of off seasons ago. So so you know. Uh, props to her um, she got a little bit cut out of this picture that Stafford put on here and then and then Schefter's response is uh, he sends Kelly Stafford's tweet on this now <laughs> the funny part about uh, Schefter's thing on here is that let me see how I can put this delicately um, there is a provocative nature to Kelly's ensemble for what for what she she's wearing here and the picture that Kelly posts is just her and you can see the ring but then uh Matthew Stafford's face is is, is cropped out of this and she has a statement on here which says we look good together and then talking about the ring there um but that's kind of cropped out when most people are seeing what Schefter is doing so what what <laughs> Schefter is is putting this out there it really just shows this you know again somewhat provocative ensemble here for uh for Kelly. And of course, the big thing everyone's talking about when we talk about this picture of with Kelly is, you know, the necklace. You, you, how can you not just immediately focus in on the necklace here? I mean, you even have to sometimes you got to like zoom in here to really just get a perfect view on the necklace here uh, that that Kelly has here. And the the replies are fantastic. The quote tweets and the replies here. Um, where if, if you go into this, how many are just hitting uh, poor, poor Schefter with the, with, with the like horny, uh, dog thing on here and how many are hitting with the bonk, the bonk, um, stuff. That's just incredible, incredible here. If you go through it. So I got a, a big laugh on here going through this, going through Schefter, unfortunately putting it up here and everyone's responses to this. Everyone's kind of just asking what he's doing and what's going on here. And I will say he is just, he is just, you know, forwarding on what she put out there into the world, but it definitely was a good one. And the, the memes are a plenty in there. So you have a chance to go back and check out that tweet and you want to laugh for a while going through the responses. I suggest you do too. You, you do so because it, uh, it definitely had me laughing for a while. All right, so let's let's talk about research and some different stuff that has come out here in the offseason. We have PFF research. We also have a new piece that just got dropped that I'm going to want to talk about here from Mike Sando and his quarterback tiers. This is something I wasn't actually expecting going into to talk about, but now it looks like Mike Sando, who works for The Athletic, who initially worked for ESPN and did this quarterback tiering piece at ESPN – has come out with his interviewing 50 executives, getting the quarterback tears from everyone. And now we have a theme. Now we have a theme to the offseason here when we're talking about these pieces because tier one, where it was, you know, Patrick Mahomes as the top guy last season. Now we have Aaron Rodgers as the top guy here. And the voting average slightly lower for Patrick Mahomes. So this is two different surveys here. The one that ESPN did, which they basically, you know, stole this concept. Stole is a, is a, is a rough word. They appropriated this concept and continued it on at ESPN that Mike Sando was doing at The Athletic. So Rodgers was number one there. Now Rodgers is back to being number one here also. And what's interesting, though, for Mahomes is, this is the first season over the last three seasons that he has not been rated a tier one quarterback by every single person in the voting scale. Now, I think it's only one person who did not have him as a tier one quarterback. So it's not a huge number. It's not a revolt away from Patrick Mahomes. But again, Mahomes is one of these guys where you can be the most underrated quarterback. You can be not the most, but you can be an underrated quarterback, I think, for him being the second best quarterback in the NFL or considered to be the second best quarterback in the NFL. For me, he's number one. It's not particularly close. I don't really think. Okay. And then third here is Tom Brady, which aligns pretty closely 
with what was in the ESPN polling, and I have no problem there. Fourth is Josh Allen, again, aligning pretty closely with what we've seen before. Fifth is Justin Herbert. Now, this is interesting because fifth was Burrow in the ESPN survey. I agree with this Herbert ranking a bit more, uh, him moving up here substantially. I just think he has a little bit more upside than Burrow does. He's shown performance over two years, pretty good performance over two years versus Burrow over one year. And I know he didn't make the playoffs. He didn't go to the Super Bowl. He didn't have the moxie and everything else. But I think if you're looking at physical talents and high-end play, you probably lean Herbert a little bit there also for everything that he brings to the table. Joe Burrow, six here. And then going into tier two, we have Stafford, we have Russell Wilson, and Deshaun Watson, which is very similar to what we saw at ESPN. Watson probably getting hit a bit. I mean, he fell a bit year over year, even though he didn't play. And of course, there are plenty of issues with Deshaun Watson probably holding this down. He probably jumps Wilson and Stafford, I would say, if not for all the stuff going on with him and the sexual assault allegations, but very similar to ESPN again. And then Lamar Jackson at 10. So I know there's a big hubbub on Lamar Jackson not being a top 10 quarterback in the ESPN survey where he was 11th. So he's 10th here. And I think this is fine. 10th would be fine. 11th is fine. Also, it's not a big deal. The people that were, you know, throwing a a fit over Lamar Jackson, not being a top 10 quarterback. The reality is he's just not going to get much higher than 10th, maybe ninth or eighth in one of these surveys. He's not going to be a top five guy in these surveys. And I think that's fair because his play has fallen off the last couple of seasons after that MVP season. You can't only look at the upside as what he's had. Um, But his number did improve slightly even year over year here. And then next is Dak at 11th, where he was 10th in the ESPN survey. So very, very close to what we had seen. And there seems to, no matter who the executives are, they're being talked to. Now, what, who I'm interested in is Derek Carr, and here he is at number 12. Just like he was really number 12 here, I just don't get the ascension of Carr relative to some of these others. He had a fine year. You know, he threw the ball down the field more when he had some downfield options, but a little bit weird to me that he's being put in this category. Now, is it that big of a deal if he's 12 versus where he should be, which is maybe 14, 15? No, but I do think it's interesting that he, now he's consistently being ranked over Kyler Murray. We saw that in both different surveys here. I would have Murray over Carr. I would probably have him over Dak just for the potential for him going forward. I'd have him pretty close to Jackson, very close to Jackson after what he showed throwing the ball last year. And, you know, Matt Ryan here at 14 is a little bit interesting. Kirk Cousins at 15. Kirk Cousins is another guy where if you talk about truly underrated, it's very weird to see so many people say that Derek Carr is underrated because the, the public always has this opinion where the guy whose standing has gone up the most in the offseason is now the guy that people also want to call the most underrated. Those two things really don't go hand in hand. If perception has gone up for you the most season over season, you're probably not the most underrated person at that point in time because the perception just shot up for you. Maybe you're the most underrated versus what people thought a year ago. But guess what? That's just hindsight that you have there. That's not really telling you anything about their current underratedness. I mean, I think it's just hard to parse a way where Kurt Cousins does not look at least equivalent to Derek Carr, but yet he's fallen behind him in all these different types of rankings. And I think that's interesting. Uh, going down further, Garoppolo at 16 is actually pretty good. That's kind of where I would have him. And I think I'm a, I'm a Jimmy truther. So the fact that he's showing up here is a little bit strange because we'll see what interest he even has in the off season, probably will be released, probably will be signed for between five and $10 million for the season or traded and then negotiated down to that amount as part of the trade. Not exactly a big number here. Tannehill's next at 17. Mac Jones leading the rookies. Baker at 19. So yeah, a lot of these guys who no one seems to want are much higher on these lists. Jalen Hurts at 20th. Wentz also tied at 20th. And then we get into the Goffs, the Trevor Lawrences, the Jameis Winstons of the world after that, and kind of unknowns like Justin Fields. And people are not buying Tua, though. I'll tell you that. 26th here behind even um, Fields. I'm not saying that's hugely wrong but two and on is not going to be happy with the fact that you got the slightest of bumps after playing better better in his second season but i think there's just skepticism in his his upside here i mean he's only one ranking above davis mills for god's sake for Tua. so yeah two and on is gonna be all over that um there's no one really that interesting i don't think daniel jones at 30 yeah i think he's a little bit better than that probably but i admit it's it's pretty rough sledding for guys who haven't 
done anything substantially good as far as above average play over their first three seasons to show something going forward. You thought it was an anomaly for Josh Allen to break out after two seasons. It's really an anomaly for someone to break out after three seasons like, like Jones. And that's basically it. Sam Darnold down at 32, which is appropriate. Um, Drew Locke, 34. That's rough sledding when Drew Locke is 34 and Geno Smith is 35. You know, God bless. God bless you Seahawks fans. It's going to be an interesting year. For, for you guys dealing dealing with a lot of this stuff out here. Okay, now let's get to some PFF research. So this first piece that I want to discuss, and you know we're, we're going to get a little nerdy here, is something that breaks down and also illuminates and becomes adding a little more confidence to the idea that Elite offensive line play may not be worth what you're what you're paying for it here. So for those who did not see, I'm going to bring it in up for people watching on YouTube here. For those who did not see, the article was pass protection and diminishing returns, examining the value of the offensive linemen of offensive linemen in the passing game. This is written by our own Brad Spielberger and Judah Forkgang. Brad, the contract guru for PFF. Uh, Judah, one of our many data nerds here who can who can break things down here. And they talk about initially right off the bat the weak and strong link systems in football. And that's important to think about. So a strong link system is if you have one strong link, one great player that can make a difference. And it doesn't matter as much who the surrounding talent are. Think of it as an edge rusher. An edge rusher, sure, you can chip them. You can maybe try to slide pass protection in a certain direction. But if you have a great edge rusher, most of the time, He's going to be able to get a one-on-one matchup with maybe a chip, like I said, against a offensive tackle. And if he makes a play, if he gets a pressure, it doesn't matter whether the other guys were stuck in mud on the defensive line and didn't do anything. It's a strong link system where you can see how that elite play makes such a huge difference. A weak link system is if you have the most elite left tackle in the NFL, but your right tackle and the rest of the offensive line are well below average. Well, you know what? They'll just line up their best pass rusher on the other side. And anytime any one of those other guys are beat, no matter how well your left tackle is playing, you're going to give up a pressure. You're going to potentially give up a sack. So it's a weak link system where you need everyone to be above a certain bar of play, a certain level of play in order to have that system not fall apart. And this article by the numbers, like theoretically, we kind of knew that was that was true. But by the numbers, this article is showing some real hard data into why that is true. So if we look at the different plays here, they have a breakdown of the most successful blocking tackles since from 2015 over 2021 with a minimum of 200 snaps. I think it's interesting to get this idea because we can look at adjusted successful blocks. So I like this a lot because they're adjusting for different type of features that are happening during the play. It adjusts adjusts for which position they're in. It adjusts for the matchups for the defenders. It adjusts for RPOs and screens, drop back depth, talent of the defender, all these different things here. So it has David Bakhtiari is having the highest percentage of successful blocks. And what's really, you know, always jumps out at you here, you know, 96.8% of the time when Bakhtiari is lining up to pass protect at tackle, it's successful. In other words, he's not giving up a pressure on that snap. It just shows you how good you have to be play in, play out for these different offensive linemen to protect and to do your job there. And Bakhtiari has been the best according to this number. Next, we have Tristan Wirfs, uh, Mitchell Schwartz, who officially announced his retirement. Congratulations to you. Uh, Joe Thomas, you know, a bunch of different guys coming through here. All the names that you would expect being near the top here. Maybe Jack Conklin isn't a name that you'd expect, but still it's a pretty big difference. You, you don't think it's a big difference between, you know, 95, 96.8 or 94.8, but 2% of the time you're giving up additional pressure. That means basically once per game, you're giving up potential, potentially a sack and a game changing play there. And that will make a big difference over the course of a season. And, you know, they also look through the interior line. Again, I don't need to go through all these things, but a lot of names that you'd expect. Marsha Yonda, TJ Lang, Richie Incognito, Incognito uh, in the house. Uh, Joel 
Betonio, Zach Martin, others are up here for this number. So that's kind of the basis is looking at, let's look at this successful adjusted block percentage, not getting a negative grade on this basically. And then let's look at how this works out as far as the expected points added that you're getting on a play versus the successful block percentage for all these different players. And if you look at it, your EPA, so the your offensive efficiency basically goes up a lot when you have versus if you have a 92.5, let's say, successful block percentage versus an 87.5, what you would expect on that given play, on that given drop back to pass play is a lot higher. But then it starts to flatten out at between 92.5% and 95%, whereas where you really get into that elite, elite type of number. And the problem is, even if you're getting a few percent higher number, as far as how elite you are there for a great blocker, is that the rest of the offensive line, if they're not also at that same level, they're mitigating some of that benefit that you're getting because they're giving up pressures some of those times. And it flattens out at that point. So the benefit that you're getting as a team, it rises, it rises, it rises. And a good point to look at is to say around 92% is where is where you're getting a, a good player there. 92% successful block range. If you can get above that a little bit, you continue to raise what your expectations are, the cumulative amount that you're adding to your efficiency on offense, but then it drives down after that. So why is that important of saying the incremental benefit for elite play versus good play isn't worth that much? Well, it's important because of how much these guys are getting paid. And they broke down everyone here by whether you would say by their successful block percentage, whether they're bad, average, good, or elite. And again, getting that good play from players, the adjusted salary per year you would expect to have to pay someone who's giving you good play is 6.9 very nice uh million per season and if you get to elite it's 12.8 million so it's not double but it's almost double the amount you're paying there whereas the incremental amount that you're paying for average versus bad is about 2.2 million for good versus average is about 2.7 million but then getting from good to elite you're paying nearly $6 million while you're getting diminishing returns, according to the numbers. So the thought is here, and I think this proves what we've said before about offensive line play, or proves is maybe a strong word. It's, it's more evidence pointing towards what we've said about offensive line play is that getting a collection of good talent, having five good players versus a couple of elite players and then bad players, you're going to get better results for about the same price or even less having that good talent on the offensive line. And they also go to an example of Orlando Brown and maybe thinking about that a little bit on the 18, 19 million a year that you're going to have to pay him, maybe even more if he wants to be the highest paid player in the league, whether or not that's worth it. It looks questionable. And I think that's why it's good here for the chiefs that they are digging their heels in slightly, at least on what they're going to end up paying for him. All right. Second piece of research that I want to highlight from this week is a better way at looking at contract value. And I think this is important. We just talked about the Murray contract, right? And why it's difficult to get your head around, you know, what's the actual average per year that we're talking about here? What does it mean? How does it stack up versus others? A lot of agent speak, a lot of focus on the new money versus the existing money that's all going to be part of the same contract, all that sort of stuff. So let's figure out a better way of trying to quantify what these contracts are and how we can look at them versus each other. So this article is called Introducing Expected Contract Value, A Better Way of Evaluating NFL Contracts. It is written by Arjun Menon and Brad Spiegelberger is back in the uh, Brad Spielberger is back in the mix here as our contract guy. So this is trying to get a good idea of looking at all the different factors, training a model and saying, let's look at non-rookie contracts 
let's look at different variables here. So the variables they want to look at to try to determine whether or not someone's going to be cut at a particular point in the contract. The variables that they're going to look at as part of this is the years of the contract, the age at signing, uh, draft round, which is probably not going to matter so much for the older players, position, type of contract signed, whether or not they're signing with a new team, and the prorated bonus in the final two years of the contract. So the dead money that'll be via bonus in the final two years of the contract. They looked through about 1,300 different contracts to get an idea of basically what's the likelihood that they make it to X years into the contract before being released as part of this. And they apply this to JC Jackson's contract and they say, okay, there's a you know 100% chance he's going to make it through his first year. There's basically a 100% chance he's make it through his second year, third year, 96.5. So eh, very close. And then the fourth year, it drops all the way down to 35%. And then, f- and then 5% for the fifth year. And that's it for that contract. So continuing on, obviously, in 0%. So you start to get an idea there. Hey, if we know the percentages for each year that they'll make it to, we know the amounts of cash that they'll have earned through those years, then you can take all that back and figure out, okay, this is how many years you should expect of the contract. This is how much you should expect to be paying out per year to have a a better number to compare rather than saying this is a five year, um, you know, hundred million dollar deal. You could say, well, in reality, it's more like going to be 3.75 years and 75 million. So we can compare that per year number there with others doing a similar calculation to other players and get a better number here. And they go through all these different things, all these different players that are going here. And they also have uh, Devontae Adams in here. And uh, luckily, oh, it looks like it's already been updated because they, they, they updated and they haven't expected APY here. And I think that's a really good number. I, I, I'm going to go through Adams in particular here because I think it's really illustrative to look at a particular player because his deal is a little bit wonky for me to try to figure out how much he is actually worth. So let's go over to our friends uh, at overthecap.com to get the contract details on this here for, for Adams. And again, he signed a deal where it says it's going to be 28 million per year. What is it actually? Well, he's pretty much locked in for three years. So no matter how you look at this, even in a worst case scenario, if you want to say from, from Adam's perspective, He's going to earn the bonuses, which will come out to almost $40 million. And then he's going to earn the salary in years one, two, and three, which is 3.5. Then it jumps up to six. Then it jumps up to 16.9. There's basically no way that they're getting out of it in three years. So what you would say then is, okay, there's a hundred percent chance he makes it to the end of year three. And then at the end of year three, you divide the 67.75 million that he would get over the course of the contract and you'd say, okay, well, you're earning about 22.5 million, 22.6 million. Then you say, well, what's the probability that they makes it to year four? Let's say there's a 50, 50 chance that he, he continues on in this. So then in year four on this contract, the salary jumps up to 35.6 million. Maybe that 50% is a little too generous that he's going to be paid that sort of amount at 33 years old, but let's just use it for the sake of this example. So then you say, okay, 50% chance he makes it there. He earns another 35.6 million. So then that would be basically at that point, four years, 104 million, 26 million per season. And then let's say there's another 25% chance that he goes on and earns the full contract. So he earns another 33.6 million that brings it up to 140 million in total over five years. So again, that's how you get to that $28 million a year number that is being touted out there by the agent playing through the entire contract. But we're again, in this hypothetical example, we're saying that's only a 25% chance of happening. So in our hypothetical example, we would say 50% of the time, he plays three years, and again, we're basing this upon all the different factors of his age and his position and everything else. 25% of the time, he plays four years, and then the other remaining quarter of the time, 25% of the time, he plays all five years. You do a weighted average of all that stuff. You come up with a number. Then you could say, Devontae Adams, while you say five years, $140 million, in reality, at $28 million a year, in reality, 
what it is is an expected length of 3.75 years at an expected APY of 24.8 million. So 24.8 million would be a better number in this scenario that I'm laying out here. There's a 25% chance of playing, of being cut after four years and a 25% chance of being cut after five years. I'm saying that would be a more accurate way of looking at it. And then you can compare it to the other players. So you could compare it to other wide receivers and their contracts over the off season where AJ Brown actually looks like he's going to have the highest amount earned because of his younger age. And because of the fact that he doesn't have these huge years lopped on to the end, like Tyreek Hill and Devonte Adams have. And then it goes down to Diggs and then Hill and then Adams a little bit lower than those, than those amounts. And it's just a better way of trying to figure out h- how contracts are being earned and judging how these teams are doing in the off season with their contract negotiations. And that's really the key here. Uh, Another great piece of research that you can find at PFF. And I will just say before, you know, logging off here after going through this research, I will say if you go to the website, you'll see it's 40% off right now at PFF. Promo code 40 saves 40% on all annual PFF subscriptions. No better time than now. The season's coming. The fantasy football season's coming. Everything's coming. Go ahead, sign up on PFF. Get all of the great research there that I highlight here. Plus, I got a lot of fantasy football stuff that you're going to see there and maybe a few other pieces that I'll be putting out throughout the year. All right. Thanks so much, everyone, for tuning in here. Uh, I'll be coming at you later this week. Maybe an interview lined up. I'm not sure if we're going to do that or not. Maybe we'll have some camp news. Maybe we'll have some Deshaun Watson news to talk about then. But until then, thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and I'll be talking to you later this week. Thanks so much.